Today we continue in this, uh, in this Lenten season, and we're going to continue with our Lenten uh, homily series. Um, if you're just joining us, we're in, a, we're in the middle of a homily series, kind of breaking open the background and kind of the foundations and the Old Testament context for how we got the Mass that we celebrate today. Because so often Catholics get questions of, you know, why y'all do what you do? Um, and quite honestly, most of us, if we haven't gone through it, if we, don't, if we haven't heard it, may not understand. It's just kind of what we've always done, right? When you go to a Protestant church, it's a, it's a lot of preaching or music or the community aspect. But Catholics, typically our mass looks the same no matter where we are. And it's just kind of consistent and we might not understand why. Um, this week I was actually having, uh, uh, I was thinking on it. Um, we've gotten a lot, really, really comfortable, a lot of us, I think, with the idea of... Um, of just online stuff, right? Meetings, um, meetings, watching Mass on TV, um, those kind of things. I think a lot of times what can happen is we, we grow so accustomed to that um, that I know I've gotten the question since we've kind of reopened post-COVID of, well, why do we have to go to church? Well, if you bear with me during this homily, we'll get to the point that we'll be able to answer that question, and it may, may, um, it may speak directly to who we are as Catholics, why our Mass looks like it does, and I don't want to speak for you, but I know the first time I heard this, this changed the way that I looked at our faith. It, changed, it was probably one of the most impactful moments when I heard this part of how the Old Testament Passover points to our current Mass. If you haven't joined us uh, the last two weeks, just to catch you up, the last two weeks, what we've basically done, myself and Father Bruce, is that we have basically just defined two terms, right? Uh, the first term that we defined two weeks ago was worship. And worship um, is something that God sees as important, the first commandment, right? You shall have you shall hold the Lord your God above all others, you shall not have other gods, and you shall worship Him, and Him alone. God has a particular way how he asks us to worship him in the book of Exodus. He gives four chapters in the book of Exodus on how to live, starting with the Ten Commandments, and he gives seven chapters to the Israelite people of how to worship. So he spends twice as much time telling them how to worship as opposed to how to live, meaning worship is important to God. Worship is important to God, and God is the one that determines how we worship, not us. That was our homily two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about how God asked us to worship, and that is through sacrifice. And sacrifice is meant to make something holy or to set something apart or to consecrate something to God. And we use the example, myself and Father Bruce, we both use the example of bread. We have bread in the rectory. We have bread in the sacristy that's stored and ready to be used for Mass one day. But there's some bread that has already been consecrated to God in the tabernacle. It's God bread. It's set apart. It's made holy, right? Well, for a sacrifice, you need four things. You need a victim or an offering. You need something to be sacrificed. You need a priesthood, someone to do the sacrificing. You need an altar, a place for the sacrifice. And finally, you need to consume the sacrifice, either by burning it or by eating it. So we have those four things for sacrifice. 
Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a particular sacrifice, the most important sacrifice that God first gives to his people in the Old Testament, and that is the sacrifice of the Passover. But for us to understand and appreciate how the Passover comes about, we need a little bit of context. So bear with me, but we're going to do a little history lesson. When you break open your Bible, the first book that you're going to see is the book of Genesis. And we start with creation, and then it goes to Noah, and then it goes to Abraham, and then he has some sons, and that's God's chosen people. They all stem from Abraham. Well, Abraham's great-grandkids, he had, there was a pile of them, there was all boys. If you've ever seen the play Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, this is the story that, that, is, that is depicted. Joseph, the youngest of his brothers, gets sold into slavery. They were going to kill him, but they decided to sell him into slavery because he was too much of the little spoiled runt. His dad liked him too much, and the brothers were jealous. So he gets sold into slavery in Egypt. He lives in Egypt. He ends up working his way up a social class. His brothers come to the Egyptians begging, because, begging for food because they're starving. He shows mercy upon them. Happy story, end of the, end of the book of Genesis. But one of the themes of the Old Testament is that in the Old Testament, what you reap is what you sow. What goes around comes around. So what ends up happening is that Israel, the people, Israel, Israelites, right, the followers of Abraham, the family of Abraham, find themselves now in Egypt for 400 years in captivity. They become enslaved to the Egyptian people. Egyptians showed mercy upon them, and we're going to let you come live with us. And slowly, that turns into a second class, and into a lesser class, and then you're our slaves. And you answer directly to us. For 400 years, they're in captivity. Now what happens over 400 years is that they forget two things. They forget who they are, as Abraham's descendants, and they forget whose they are. They stop worshiping their God and start worshiping others. The small g gods of the Egyptians. Now, every one of us, with reverence, I got a feeling that every one of us in the church has probably broken a commandment in our life, right? So I've got confession, praise God, thank you, Jesus, because I need it, I know. Um, but every one of us has probably broken a commandment but the big thing is like when you're a nation and you're following Jesus and you're I mean you're following the Lord and you're and you're you're God's chosen people you probably shouldn't break the first one like you can break every other like you break every other commandment God will forgive you for it but don't break the first one but they forgot who they were because they had been in captivity they had been stuck in this foreign land for so long that they started to adopt the religious practices of the Egyptians. I use an example. My first year as a priest, I spent it in cutoff, um, which in some people's eyes, if you're a Central Lafouche grad or a Central Lafouche fan, um, that would be considered pagan territory because that's tarpon territory, right? And if you're down there, like I remember when I got down there, when I moved in, I walked into my office and sure enough, my office was plastered with blue and with gray. And it was everywhere. Because the people had done their research and knew that I was a Central fan, or that I was graduated from Central, and that they were going to make sure to let me know that this is Tarpon territory. And I was like, all right, great. 
So I remember my first thing I did, we had a kid, there was a kid that was involved with the baseball team. He was selling stuff like a little fundraiser. And he comes up to me and he said, would you want to buy something? I think I bought one of everything that was on his sheet, right? I had like a little jacket. I had a hat. I had a t-shirt. I had all kind of stuff because I was like, I want to, I want to make my own offering to the gods of the tarpon head, right? Like just to make sure that like people could look at me and see that I'm, I'm with them, Right? 85 degrees outside, I'm wearing a pullover, a, a jacket with a big SL on it, just to try and show, like, I'm willing to do penance for the sake of this, right? The jacket's still hanging up in my, in my, in my uh, closet, and then i got to remember to burn it later, right? But anyway, like, I remember we were, I had this, like, it was this feeling of, I'm here, so I have to embrace what's here. For 400 years, the Israelites were in captivity. They were in Egypt, so they felt themselves having to embrace what was in front of them. If I ever move to Alabama, it ain't happening, right? Let's, let's say that first. But it, that's, that's how they felt. That's what they had to do. Well, we know the story. Moses gets called by God. Moses is sent by God to Pharaoh, basically saying, look, we are going to start worshiping God and God alone. He goes to Pharaoh and he asks, let my people go. Why? Go out three days into the wilderness so they can offer sacrifice in right worship to me. And Pharaoh says, absolutely not. No. Why would I allow you to go offer sacrifice to some other foreign god? Moses says, but it's the real god. And he says, no. Pharaoh says, over my dead body. And God says, let's see what we can arrange. What ends up happening from then on is that we, we know the story of the plagues. You ever wondered why there were ten plagues? The ten plagues corresponded to the pagan gods of the Egyptians. God, Yahweh, declares war on the Egyptians' gods. For example, if, if you have a, we have, a, we have a, uh, a table of them in the bulletin today. The first plague, water turns into blood, right? God is waging war on the pagan gods because the god of the Nile was one that the Egyptians would offer sacrifice to. And it's God flexing and saying, this is a false God. I'm the real one. And systematically, he works his way through. Systematically, he works his way through all of these pagan gods, all of these idols, all of these fake gods of the Egyptians. And the God Yahweh stands there over them saying, I have dominion and power in this place. Not these false gods. And after every plague, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go so we can go offer sacrifice. And Pharaoh says, no. And again, and again, and again. Until we get to the tenth plague. The tenth plague is the, is the tipping point. It's the point that all of a sudden, everything's going to start to make sense about the Passover. Because the 10th plague, if you look at the bulletin, the 10th plague is the death of the firstborn. Now, 
Seems a little bit radical. But notice, who is the one, who is the God, who is the deity that Yahweh is going after in the death of the firstborn? It's Pharaoh himself. Because you see, the Egyptian rulers, the Pharaohs, they saw themselves as deities. They saw themselves as living, breathing gods. And as they would have children, as they would die off, their firstborn would take the mantle of Pharaoh. And again and again, the crown would pass from the firstborn to the firstborn to the firstborn. So when God says, I'm go we're going after the firstborn, he's taking on Pharaoh directly. And in fact, we're not just going to take on the firstborn of humans, we're going to take on the firstborn of anything and everything. So if it was born, and it was first, the Spirit of the Lord is coming through Egypt, and will kill it. God's serious about that first commandment. But he gives a key, he gives a particular sacrifice, he gives particular directives in Exodus chapter 12, and he tells the Israelite people, this is how you protect yourself from this 10th plague. And that's the sacrifice that we call the Passover. There are three keys that we're going to hit today about the Passover. Three places that we're going to focus about the Passover. The first one, the first thing about the Passover that we need to remember the blood of the Lamb will set you free. Say it with me. The blood of the Lamb will set you free. One more time. The blood of the Lamb will set you free. Moses asked all of the Israelite people that each family would procure a lamb to be sacrificed. That it would be an offering to God. What would happen is, is they would bring the blood of the lamb to the elders of the people, to the older people of the Israelite people, they would and they would slay the lamb. They would kill the lamb. So we have, an, remember, we have an offering, a lamb. We have a priesthood, people who are taking in the lambs and killing them. We have a place that they're doing it, an altar. And we'll get to how they consume it in a second. But what would happen is, is they would receive the blood of the lamb into a basin. They would catch the blood. Now, if you've ever done a, if you've ever had to, had to slaughter an animal, there's a lot of blood. But what happens is, is they would catch the blood of the lamb in a basin. And God says, on number six in the bulletin, then take a bunch of hyssop, dipping it in the blood that is in the basin, apply some of this blood to the lintel and the two doorposts. So God says, what I want you to do is I want you to catch the blood and then I want you to take that blood and over your doorway, I basically want you to paint with the blood over your doorpost with the, with the blood. And as the Spirit of God comes through Egypt, when it comes upon a house that has this, it will not go in and it will pass over that household. Because they have been faithful to the sacrifice by which God has asked for. So the blood being smeared on their doorpost, on their doorway, sets them free. 
Sets them free from the tenth plague. Sets them free from the scourge of the Spirit of God and the death of the firstborn. Notice also one detail. Take hyssop and smear it on your doorpost. It's the only other time in Scripture that we hear the word hyssop. The only other place that we hear the word hyssop is whenever Jesus on Calvary is on the cross and a Roman soldier takes a sponge, soaks it in wine, puts it on hyssop and lifts it up to Jesus' mouth so that he can drink. See, today we're going to start to kind of make some connections between the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and the sacrifice of the Passover. The second thing that we need to focus on is that the sacrifice is connected to a meal. Say it with me. The sacrifice is connected to a meal. Number seven, they will take some of the blood and apply it to the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They will consume its meat the same night, eating it roasted with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now God, again, remember when two weeks ago, when we said God explains how, we're, how we worship, God is the one that dictates how we worship, that when God gives detail, that means something's important. He doesn't say general things about something that's, that something is important. He gives explicit detail of how he wants it done. And today, he tells the people, I want you to eat this lamb roasted with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Why roasted? Well, the Egyptians would also use lambs oftentimes in sacrifices to their, to their pagan gods. But what they would do when they would cook it, they would boil it. So God is saying, I want you to use the same thing, but I don't want you to confuse what you did with what we're doing, that something new is about to happen, and we want to leave the Egyptian practices in the past. So I want you to roast it. We'll hear next week about what that looks like, and how, it's going to blow your mind how that looks. We're going to have this meal. I'm going to give you the details of this meal. And if you don't follow this meal, if you don't follow this practice, you will be cut off from the community. Something at stake here. Something seriously at stake. Now, the last element to this meal is that God, the, the, one of the things about this meal, the, the last major factor, is that this meal is going to start to mark time. Now you and I, we can, we can remember, I, I was talking to somebody the other day about this, I said it's funny because we have kind of in my mind, I have a pre-COVID and a post-COVID kind of moment, right? Two years ago when the world went on lockdown, all of a sudden there were new details about stuff, online learning. Zoom meetings, like all those kind of things were foreign concepts, and now they're kind of second nature to us as a community, as a church. But we had kind of pre-COVID and now post-COVID, because when something big happens, it kind of marks time. I think many of us in this church, we can remember a life pre-Ida and post-Ida. Because when something big happens... It has a tendency to mark time. Even if we go further back, you think of 9-11-2001, pre-9-11, post-9-11. Something big happened, the world changed. Well, God is saying this meal, this, 
meal is going to be, it's going to start to mark time, that this month will stand at the head of your calendar and you will reckon it the first month of the year, that God is saying this is a big deal and it's going to be something that begins to mark time itself. And that brings us to the third element of the Passover. Remember, the blood of the lamb will set you free. This sacrifice is connected to a meal. The third element is the importance of the word memorial. Now, when we hear the word memorial, we might be thinking of like a monument somewhere. We might think of a Veterans Memorial Highway or, or something like that. But when we hear the word when, when Jews heard the word memorial, it had a very, very specific meaning. Memorial meant making present in the present moment what happened in the past. Making present in the present moment what happened in the past. To give you an example of this, um, when I was a, so we're, we're right about baseball season. I saw this, this weekend we had a bunch of kids kind of coming in and out that have got games and stuff going on in Raceland. And I remember as a kid, um, there were certain songs that would make me think of baseball, right? John Fogarty put me in coach, take me out to the ball game, makes you want peanuts and Cracker Jack, right? Like all of those certain songs that scream baseball. For me... The biggest song that gets me in the mood for baseball, the biggest song that has me directed and thinking about baseball is Rod Stewart, Maggie May. Wake up, Maggie, I think I've got something to say to you. The live version. You're probably looking at me like, Father, that has nothing to do with baseball. That's like a flirty romantic song. Like, what the heck is wrong with you? Because every game, I remember as a kid, every game I'd get home from school, I'd put my uniform on, or I'd be home from school during the summer, I'd put my uniform on. At 4 o'clock, we were walking out the door, me and my dad, even though the game started at 5.30, because my dad was dumb and always wanted to get there stupid early. So we would walk out, I'd get in a white, old, beat-up, pickup truck, company truck. I'd go to my side, put my, bat, put my batting bag in the back. My dad would go to his side, we would jump in the truck. We'd start to back out the driveway, and as we're backing out the driveway, I would lean over, and I would push the cassette tape into the radio. Little white cassette tape, it always just stayed there, sticking out. A cassette tape, if you don't know, is this little plastic thing that you used to have to rewind, and if you don't know that, it, rewinding is when you go back and you have to, anyway. So, but I remember, I, I, every, every game, from the time I was six years old to the time I was about 14 years old, I would lean over and I'd push that cassette tape in. And the first words out of his mouth was, wake up, Maggie, I think I've got every, something to say to you. Late September and I really should be back at school. We'd hear Maggie May, followed by reason to believe. And we would pull into the ballpark. We did not get out of the car until the, both songs were finished. And to this day, when I hear the song Maggie May, I'm six years old, sitting in an old white pickup truck, company truck, Chevrolet, 
pushing that tape in with my cleats on, ready for baseball. That's memorial. Makes present in the present moment what happened in the past. So when God gives this meal, when God gives this sacrifice to the Israelite people, he says, do this in remembrance of me. You will do this forever. Look at number 13. He says, you will keep this practice forever as a statute for yourselves and your descendants. How long are they going to keep it? Forever. How long are they going to keep it? Forever. It doesn't matter if it's a year later after they were free from this plague. It doesn't matter if 10 years later. It doesn't matter if it's 1,000 years later or 5,000 years later. They are going to keep this statute forever. This is a lasting and binding st- statute that God is asking for them to do in memorial of the sacrifice of the Passover. With well, this one hiccup to that plan, God. You see, 30 years, 40 years after Jesus died, in 70 AD, right around 70 AD, the Romans sacked Jerusalem. And they destroyed the temple where the sacrifice would happen. They flattened it. You go to Jerusalem today, the only thing that's left is one wall of the temple. It's the most holy place in all of the world for Jews today. The temple does not exist anymore. It's been almost 2,000 years since any lamb has been offered, since any Passover sacrifice has been offered. So what happened? We heard it in our second reading today that the old ways are passing away and there's a new thing that's happening. St. Paul's saying this to the Corinthians today. Well, Jesus one day was walking down the street and John the Baptist was out preaching and he had his disciples with him. One of them was Andrew, the brother of Peter. And when John the Baptist was preaching, he saw his cousin passing down the road and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, I've called my cousins a lot of things. We played a lot when I was a kid. I never called them a lamb of God. I called them the chicken or something, but I've never called them a lamb of God. It's a very specific phrase that a Jew would hear in a very specific way. Because you see, if there's going to be something new that's happening... There must be a new sacrifice, and if there's going to be a new sacrifice, we need a new lamb, and if there's going to be a new lamb, then there needs to be a new meal. Remember the four things for sacrifice. There's an offering, a victim. There's a priesthood, a new priesthood, an altar, a new altar that every one of us approach. But for the sacrifice to be complete, the last part that you have to do is that we have to consume the sacrifice. So today when we come to Mass, we come to consume the sacrifice. The sacrifice is made complete here on this altar through my hands with Jesus Christ. And that's why you can't watch Mass on Facebook. And it'd be enough. Because if there's something more powerful than that sacrifice that's in memorial, that's made present here today on this altar through my hands, if there's something else that's more powerful than that, if there's a preacher that's more powerful than that, or music that's more powerful than that, or a coffee bar selection in the back of a church that's more powerful than that, please let me know because I'm ready for it too.
I'll follow you there. You see, everything we do in Mass, the reading, the homily, it's been for one reason. To get us to Him. It's been for one reason. To bring us in communion with Him. So in a few minutes, when we, when, in a few minutes, whether we realize it or not, we're going to have the remembrance, the memory, the memorial of the day before Jesus died play out right here before us. We're going on a field trip. In a few minutes, we're not going to be in Raceland anymore. We're going to be in Jerusalem, in the upper room, with the apostles, as Jesus himself says, this is, as it says in our bulletin, take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the same blood that will set you free. The blood of the new and eternal covenant, which we poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory, or remembrance, or memorial of me. The reason why we're here this morning is not for a homily. It's not because we're supposed to. It's not because of me, or for the Bruce, or whatever priest, or whoever. We're here for him. And our mass isn't going to change. And will never change. Because, he may, because our memorial, the Mass that we celebrate, makes present in the present moment what happened in the past. And we're with Him in the Eucharist here today. As we continue in this Mass, I invite you as, we, as we're praying the prayers, as we're moving through the Mass, that... To, to fight the temptation for it to be like every other Mass that you've ever been to. To go on autopilot and just kind of flip a switch and, oh yeah, I know when to stand, I know when to sit. But to listen to the words that we pray. Particularly when a new priesthood behind a, a new altar with a new sacrifice offered out lifts up the chalice and says, behold the Lamb of God. Because it's that lamb that has been sacrificed. It's that lamb of God. That blood that has, been set us free, that has set us free. That, blood, that lamb that is made present again. And that meal that we're invited into. And today, our prayer be very simple. Just like John the Baptist, we can behold the lamb of God.